try not to keep you longer than about 35 minutes. That's, that's right. fine. That's fine. I'm, I've got no um, no calls on my time. So no, but fine. I thought you did because the amount of work you do, it is amazing to find a window to talk to you. <laughs> I, I don't do as nearly as much work as I've, I've been doing. Yeah. Excellent. Yeah, yeah, in previous years, you know, generally there's more people out there writing about football finance than there were five years yeah. ago, and you're getting young guys coming out of um, university having studied football finance. Yes. So under the tutelage of Kieran Maguire. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I Kieran Maguire is one of those people that I do follow, and uh, he seems like a good, good fellow. I've actually spoken to him once or twice down the years but um yeah but you've got youngsters who are you know, they're coming out of all sorts of places you know abroad as well um having studied football finance or sports business and things like that and these guys are you know i'm an old man compared to these people for and, sure for sure you know, young at heart my grandma's 80 next year i still think of her as mid 50s somewhere like watford i went a couple of weeks ago um, Watford, the great uncrowned football team, never won a thing in the top division, never won an FA Cup. Uh, we've won playoffs and we've won third divisions, but you could have included us in this book, the great uncrowned football's most celebrated losers. But I was at the ga- the at the Vic, 100 years to the day since the first game at Vicarage Road took place. We won in the last minute. It was a great game. Yeah. But at halftime, there was this parade of not just former players, but people who had put together a book and I'm having Jeff Wicken into the football library soon. And Jeff wrote The Vicar 100, which is a book mm-hmm. that he put together. Um, and that kind of thing belongs in a local community club, not in a petrochemical state. It's going to be very difficult for Newcastle to honour, say in 2026, when they win the Champions League. How far removed is that club from the John Hall, Freddie Shepherd club of 1996? Oh, yeah. You've got two sorts of football these days you've got um the small community clubs and mid-sized clubs of which Watford is is one of them I guess but then you've got corporate football which is the the big clubs you know the the sort of uh, the big premier clubs you know the um clubs like Barcelona Real Madrid Bayern Munich these um these are uh, corporate clubs if you like and that's a different different thing altogether now it's glitzy, it's glamorous, it's huge. And, and it's, a, it's a million miles away from clubs like Watford, unfortunately. Quite right. But, but now we have this stratum of departure lounge clubs. Dortmund, the Red Bull dynasty. Um, mm-hmm. Brighton and Brentford, who are doing amazing things. Kieran Maguire is a Brighton fan. And mm-hmm. Brighton, I think they, they will hit a ceiling. They know that if they get a good manager, he'll be poached by, I don't know, Chelsea and be given a squad where you have two players in every position. It is, it is the world, and I think people just accept that, just because the level of football in corporate football, your Hollands, your Salahs, uh, to mm-hmm. an extent your Jadon Sancho's, that, the technicality of that is so brilliant. So people just don't, they, they shrug and go, all right, if the football's so good, we'll watch it. Do you foresee a time where people will not shrug? No. Not really, because if you look at Spain, for example, it's been dominated by two clubs for many, many years. And those two clubs are far richer than everyone else. You've you've had a sort of, if you like, an organic situation where these um, 
elite clubs have been head and shoulders above their their peer, their peer group in in Spain for decades, and that, and people accept it because they rely on little victories. If uh, a club like Celta Vigo beats Barcelona, they probably rejoice for a week um, because they've they've beaten one of these you know major clubs. So the situation we're seeing in other countries and generally across Europe is really a sort of um, mass polarisation across the continent where you've got the sort of situation you've had in Spain is now in Europe where, uh, you know, the, you've got the top European clubs and you've got other clubs that have got no chance of ever being in that same bracket. But people accept it. The answer to that question is no, I don't, I don't think people will ever be deterred from this because people well, like glitzy, glamorous things. But they also like to... And I've, I've just written this novella and I've set it in the league below, the league below, the football league, so far, far away from the glitz. But also, it's uh, even at that level, you want to associate yourself. And I learned this from Steeple Cinderby Wanderers. Um, J.L. Carr put in his book... Uh, people want to associate themselves with the winning team. So we have a load of Manchester United fans and Liverpool fans my age. I imagine there'll be a load of Chelsea fans in their 20s because they were swept up in, uh, don't mention Abramovich. I think I mentioned it, but I got away with it. Um, And now we're in this era where Chelsea Football Club is having to adapt for a new age. But there's lots of good things about Chelsea, um, but I'd much rather support QPR, where you can go to Loftus Road, for instance, and um, they might go up, and if they do, it'll be a good few seasons, but QPR are probably, all things being equal, like the 21st best club in Britain, Chelsea are the third or the fourth, all things Mm -hmm. being equal. So um, I wonder if there will be an audience, and I hope there is, for this book, The Great Uncrowned, Football's Most Celebrated Losers, because without the top of the pyramid... The bottom of the pyramid can't get the funding, but without the bottom of the pyramid, the top of the pyramid doesn't have um, foundations to build on. So is that why you wrote this book, to remind yourself? Um, no, not really, no. The Great Uncrowned is, is about uh, teams which, um, which have you know, captivated people, but they've not won the truly big prizes. So, for example, Queen's Park Rangers are actually featured. You mentioned them a couple of times this morning. The 1976 team, uh, which was so, so close to winning the the league title and actually was the most entertaining and most beautiful team of 1975-76, when they should have won it, they're featured in it because they left a real impact on me. Even as a Chelsea fan, that QPR team were wonderful to watch. Um, Another team very similar, in my view, is the Ipswich Town team of 1981. They had an excellent 11, but didn't have the strength in depth, really, to fight on all fronts. And they did, unfortunately. They they were trying to keep three competitions going, the league, the FA Cup and the UEFA Cup, which they won. They didn't win the league. They were arguably the best side, but Aston Villa... Um, who were also an excellent side at the time, they were, they just seemed to have more resolve and they were more consistent and just kept ploughing away and Ipswich were, were probably more exciting, but they were a little fragile and and in the end they burnt themselves out, I think. Mm. And 
Also, I mean, the book is also about national teams that, that have really sort of captured our imagination, but never won the, the, the really big prizes. And the Dutch, um, the Dutch teams of the 70s um, really left a big mark on me. As a kid, I mean, I was really into Ajax as a, as a youngster, as well as Chelsea, of course. But um, I was I was a huge fan of Ajax, and I used to read anything that I could find about uh, European football when I was very very young. And we're talking about the early seventies. So when they lost the World Cup in 1975, I was actually heartbroken because I thought it was their destiny to win it. However, I didn't feature that team in the Great Uncrowned. I featured the team in 1978, who finished runners-up to Argentina. And actually, if you look at it carefully, they went closer to winning the World Cup than, than the team of Cruyff, because they hit the post in the last minute of normal time. And the ball it seemed to roll against the, the post and come away. And then the final whistle went. They were seconds away from winning and they were just unlucky. But to me, that team you know, went so close. I wonder how they would have got out of the stadium in Buenos Aires Ooh, yes. if, they, if they had have won it in those days. Because right. that was Argentina under the Junta uh, right-wing regime. And I really do wonder, you know, if their safety would have been guaranteed if they'd have won the World Cup well, in since, Buenos Aires. Neil Jensen, since you've mentioned World Cups, uh, the Football Library will be closed throughout the Qatar World Cup so that we can all enjoy uh, a drink whilst um, drowning our sorrows when all about us is chaos. But we will have over 250 Football Library visits, including two from you. Uh, you came in to talk about your first book, uh, a couple of years ago. Do you remember when, uh, I've got a book here, I can tell you when you came into the library the first time? It must have been about three years ago. Ooh, oh, not quite three. Was it uh, my book, uh, Mittel? Yes, uh, it was November yeah. the 11th, 2020, so just short of mm -hmm. two years ago. And yes, it right. was Mittel. Um, I enjoyed Mattel, having yeah. you in. Uh, November of 2020, uh, that season ended with Chelsea winning the Champions League. Uh, the 2022-23 season begins, well, with something different. Have you been aghast and unsurprised at what's been going on at Stamford Bridge this year? Do you think it was inevitable that what would have happened, happened? Um, in a way, yes, because um, as much as we can all admire Thomas Tuchel for, and for what he did, it's always... When a new uh, new owner takes over a club, or you know, in the world of business, if a new CEO or, or a new senior guy runs your department or whatever, the people who were there, the legacy people, are always vulnerable. Having worked in the world of finance myself, I know that well, I went through lots and lots of changes of management, and there was always a degree of nervousness when a new CEO started or a new you you got a new boss. And I think this is very much the same. I mean, the, the people that have taken over Chelsea are, you know, a degree of Wall Street in their in their DNA, I think. So um, the hard-nosed sort of cut-and-thrust world of, of finance is in their blood. And Tuchel was not their man. 
he was employed by the Abanovich regime. Now, when Abanovich took over at Chelsea, uh, Claudio Ranieri was in a very similar situation. It, everyone knew that he was dead man walking, as they say, you know, and that at the end of that season, he would be replaced. And indeed he was by uh, Jose Mourinho. So um, Tuchel, yes, definitely was vulnerable. I think it's personally, I think they've made a bit of a mistake uh, on this because I think Tuchel is one of the elite band of managers, uh, coaches. Grand Potter has great potential, obviously, and, and he is something of a media darling at the moment that you know, people point to him and say that he is you know, one of the men of the future. However, I think you know you don't discard uh, a manager like Tuchel um, very comfortably. Who had already think. been discarded by Paris Saint-Germain. Yes, but Paris Saint-Germain, again, is another similar situation insofar. Paris Saint-Germain's goal is to win the Champions League. So everyone gets uh, a stab at it, but if you don't do it, you're shown the door. Um, they've been through quite, quite a few managers. Um, because they haven't won the Champions League. But, I mean, I mean, what Chelsea have done, they've got rid of a guy who's won the Champions League for them, yeah. which to me is is bizarre. But um, it, it is something of a bizarre club um, and has been for a long time. But they have, they have made this really interesting decision. They mm. think that, and that they must think this, that Graham Potter could be the first English manager to win this new division. He'll be the first person to do it he, they would they have given him players who are better than Brighton's players they know what he did at Ostersund they know what he did at Team Bath he is a great elite coach who has the understanding of the modern player in the way that Tuchel does but I, I everyone will think that this is great because he gets to manage Raheem Sterling Mason Mount uh, when he comes back from Hull City Harvey Vale and sundry England players do you think yeah. this is just the next stop in Graham Potter's journey to become England's manager? Oh, quite possibly. I, I, one of the things I, I, I felt was that why would Potter go to Chelsea, apart from the, the uh, remuneration, why would he go to... He's an up-and-coming manager who is on, on that path. Maybe he will manage England at some point. But he, he, his next step from Bryant was to, was to manage a an elite level club. Um, however, um, whether he's ready for it or not is another matter. Y you know, I mean, Manchester United, when they, when Ferguson left, they appointed David Boyes, who was seen as one of those managers who, you know, ne uh, deserved and needed the next step up. And it didn't work. Um, Moyes has fortunately come back and, and he's, you know, enjoying his time at West Ham, but but Graham Potter. How long will Graham Potter be at Chelsea? You know, the, the history and the, the stats tell us he won't be there more than two years. What will it do for Graham Potter if he is discarded after two years? Um, yes, but what happens now? What happens after two years? It's the qualification process for the Twenty Six World Cup. Well, yes, if 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 indeed he is the man who. It won a, you know, heir apparent to Gareth Southgate. With him or but, Eddie Howe, who is going to do get yeah. the squad? He's he's going to be sacked by the end of this season, Eddie Howe, because they'll bring in. Oh, I don't know, Thomas Tuchel. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
it's quite possible. It's quite possible that Thomas Tuchel will be on uh, Newcastle shopping list. They'll pay uh, him although... to take no other job. They, apparently Van Bronckhorst had this at Man City and eventually they went with, uh, well, Guardiola didn't leave in the end. But right. I, I can see them doing that because Saudi Arabia and the PIF have so much money that they can afford to do that. So they can afford to have a manager in reserve and have a, a prenup. Essentially. But anyway, this is nonsense. We want to get back to the great uncrowned, football's most celebrated losers. How long did it take to write and and what was the process of narrowing down the selection of the great uncrowned? Yeah, I mean, it took about 18 months to write. It was a book I've always wanted to write, actually, because um, I've always felt that losers don't get enough uh, attention. And football being the you know, the narrow margin of success that it is, the difference between winning, losing or drawing, uh, winning a cup, winning the championship can be one goal. The, the, the margins are so narrow that um, often really, really good runners up get forgotten and, and are deemed failures when really they've just been bloody unlucky, you know. So, yeah. um, so I've always wanted to write this book and I know some of the teams featured will be obvious. Uh, there's one or two that are less obvious, perhaps. But I think they deserve the attention, these teams. And uh, some of them have been teams that have, you know, sort of informed my views on football, such as the Brazil team of 82, the Dutch. Uh, even, you know, reading the history books, the Hungarians and the Austrians, who are, are really fascinated by by the Austrian Wunder team of the 30s, so much so that I went and found the the grave of one of their biggest stars, Matthias Sindela. Sindela, wow. Yeah, yeah, in Vienna, um, we, my wife and I, went to the cemetery and found his grave, which had fresh flowers on it, um, oh. which I found quite telling. And he's there, resting amongst some of the greats of the classical music um, world, uh, all around him. So um, he he's a legendary figure who died in suspicious circumstances. And, yeah, I mean, that team that he was part of was... I've been fascinated with for many years. So I featured them as well. It's a book that, as I say, I've always wanted to write, and it was incredibly enjoyable writing it. The publishers were fantastic, Pitch Publishing. And I hope to do some more work with them. Uh, in the future. They are brilliant, um, not just because they deign to publish from kids to champions, the history of the FA Youth Cup um, in uh, May, but they oh, have... that's your book. That's that, your book. That's yeah. mine. Um, they have yeah. such a fine catalogue, and, and I don't know how many books are left, how many stories are left to tell from football history, because in the last 10 years or so, they've covered most of them. Uh, the Great Uncrowned is one of them. Who are the most recent teams in this book? I put in... Uh, the um, England team of 2018. Harry Kane's uh, on the cover. Yeah, I uh, yeah put that. I included them because one, it's fresh in the memory, and two, I did want to give a perspective that you know it wasn't just um, loads of um, old teams that they, you know it, it came up to sort of present day. Also, there's a team uh, more recently. There was Schalke, I think. Was it Schalke from 2001? who yes. were three minutes away from winning, or they were champions of the Bundesliga for three minutes and, and Bayern Munich 
surprise, surprise, mm-hmm. um, one. Um, and then I go back in the 90s, you've got Newcastle United with under Keegan, um, who was a great team to watch. The oldest team is Oldham Athletic, would you believe, 1914-15. Yes, um, the year is significant. Yes, and the most recent is the England team. That so. Newcastle United team, so that was after just before Euro 96. So in advance of Euro 96, I was watching the Premier League on Sky Sports that year. That was the first season I remember, 95-96. OK. Um, so I do remember the Philippe Albert chip over Schmeichel, which I know was the next season. Um, and the way that Newcastle played the game with very advanced fullbacks. Um, yeah. Aspria coming in in the middle of the season, Ginola, who was yeah. the player of the year yeah. that year. Ginola was a wonderful player. Yeah. Um, and Keegan, I mean, I, I've, I've always had a lot of time for Kevin Keegan, um, going way back to when he first came on the scene. I've always admired him because he made so much of what, he, what talent he had. Um, he wasn't the most skillful player. But my God, the 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 um, commitment and the um, you know endeavour that he just put into things was incredible, and also the way he inspired others. And so Kevin Keegan, you know, was always you know he played for Liverpool when uh, when I was young, and you know I was supporting Chelsea. But I really did like Kevin Keegan, and as a manager as well, I had to admire the way play, way his team played. But the way his team played probably cost him, cost him honours, really. Why, um, would, but... why would Terry McDermott not have said to him, look, mate, just, we, we know we can attack, but we can't win 6-5 every time? <laughs> why wouldn't he have done that? Well, I mean, they looked like they were enjoying themselves. And uh, secondly, um, Keegan was the boss. And I think in football, you know, there is a hierarchy, and especially in those days. Keegan was the gaffer, and they stand and fall by their decision making. But I think you know Keegan was, you know, a naive, naive in a way the way he he played it. But people enjoyed watching him, and and they still love him on Tyneside, and um, and rightly so because I think he's a he, he's an inspirational figure. And um, so that Newcastle team, I mean, I would have loved them to have won. Um, the league title um, for the good of football, really, for the way they played it. But um, yeah. just thinking about thinking about Keegan, who famously was barred by Mike Ashley of going to Newcastle. Now he and Alan Shearer are, are back in their good books. But Keegan, mm-hmm. who disappeared from football because he wanted to play loads of golf, has seemed to mm-hmm. disappeared again. He's not there in the way that Roy Hodgson has finally retired this year. Oh uh, no, that's right. And I think um, there's a couple of reasons probably for that. One, that, I mean, Keegan must be in his mid, um, mid to early to mid seventies. His time has gone, really. You know, he's actually gone. But he does appear at some business events because um, my former boss uh, was in, I think it was Rotterdam or Amsterdam a technology conference and Keegan was there um, on behalf of a company like, um, you know, he was endorsing something. So, and that was only a few years ago. So I think he still does some stuff, but he lives, I think he lives in Spain as well. Mm -hmm. Mm. Marbella, Um, something like that. So he's, 
He's not in the news. Sven Goran Eriksson is in the news because David Dean is about to put out his memoir. And uh-huh. uh, David is the connection between Sven and Arsene Wenger and English football. Um, there are yeah. several football books, not just The Great Uncrowned, Football's Most Celebrated Losers by Neil Jensen, which is out now, published on pitch. Uh, but have you seen who's got books out this autumn in advance of the World Cup? I don't know if you'll be... I'm going to read some of the titles out and you can just give me a yes-no, since I know that you read a lot of football books regardless. Uh, let's start with the one you probably won't read. Micah Richards, his memoir. Uh, no, uh, I've not. Um, uh, what I about read it either, probably. <laughs> what about Mark Noble's Mr West Ham? No. And I probably wouldn't read that, not because I don't like Mark Noble, but I don't like the sort of biography-type books um, of players. They tend to be a little bland, really, I think. Not even um, Peter Crouch's How to Be an Ex-Footballer written with Tom Fordyce? um, Probably not, but that probably sounds like it might be a bit different. These are all books competing with yours. Uh, I'm going to have Chris Lee in here. Oh, Chris Lee's going to be back in the football ah. library. I've started reading his book, The Defiant, which is a history of football against fascism. Yeah, I mean, I will certainly be getting a copy of that. He's a really good writer, Chris Lee. Yeah, I would definitely get that book. The, I've seen that. The yeah. amount of research that he's put in. I think yeah. that is uh, a pitch publication as well. Yeah, I think um, it is, yeah. yeah. There, are, there are certain elder statesmen, Jeff Shreves... Can you believe Jeff Shreves has been given a chance to talk about his life, thrusting a microphone in front of people? Yeah. Mm. yeah. Yes or no? no. Are you going to read that no. one? No. 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 Uh, what about Football Murals by Andy Brassel, Top Brass? Oh, Andy Brassel, yeah, he's quite good. So mm. that's a possibility. Yeah. There is yeah. Uh, Paul Hayward's um, big project for the last few years has been England Football. Uh, which seems yeah. to have led on from Henry Winter's book about 50 years of hurt, but Paul goes yeah. right the way back. Well, Paul Hayward's another good writer, so I, that's a possibility. Yeah, I mean, that, not a priority probably, but actually, you know, he's a good, as I say, he's a good writer. I like to read good writers, you know, and um, that's why a lot of the time I don't like biographies. Mm. Um, but um, it depends. I mean, for example, I, I did... Uh, by the Megan Rapinoe. Um, oh, what was that like? I haven't read that one. I haven't read it yet, but I bought it. I've got it here amongst many books still to be read. But, um, but the Paul Haywood one is a possibility. Yeah. Well, if you if you want to read great writing, look no further than Danny Gray, the editor of Nutmeg Magazine, whose latest uh, in his series yeah. of wee books is called The Silence of the Stands. Yeah, he's a, he's another decent writer. Yeah, I know him. He is yeah. extraordinary. Um, and then there are several um, paperbacks, including the memoirs of Marco van Basten, Glenn Hoddle, Francis Benali, Patrice Evra, Troy Deeney and Pat Nevin. Those paperbacks are all going to be oh, under I've some trees. I've, uh, I've read the Pat Nevin book. Actually. I love that book. It's one of yeah, my favourite a... books in the football library. We haven't had him in. Uh, but he yeah. said, yeah, I've written number two and I've started number three. That's how much Pat yeah. has to say. Well, Pat, uh, Pat Nevin was a, an excellent player, but he's also a very articulate man. Um, I've got a, a slightly funny story, well, not funny story, but a story about um, Pat Nevin. And that is that um, I used to work with a, uh, a, a woman who, whose father was the chairman of Clyde. Mm. And um, their family was heavily involved with Clyde for many years. And I met him once and had lunch with him. 
And and he was telling me that when Pat Nevin signed for Chelsea, that Ken Bates was such a, a you know a hard devil to deal with, and they they've always felt that Chelsea turned them over on that transaction. <laughs> um, but he was laughing about it. It was a, a good-natured uh, thing. But he did say, you know, how tough Chelsea had been when they um, when they wanted yeah. to buy a Nevin. Tough, so, tough, and tough do, club. And... But you know, Wee Pat, as they called him, mm. um, was very, very popular at Clyde. Um, he was very popular at Chelsea. But I mean, interesting. The book is very good, and also it's interesting how he describes his departure from Chelsea because um, it, it was clear that Chelsea wanted to cash in on, it, on him um, at the time and didn't, I think, they were, if I recall, they, were, they didn't give him, offer a new contract and his contract was due to, to expire at some point, but they basically wanted to sell him. And this was, this was pre, pre-Bosman as well, so he couldn't, I don't think he could have walked away, but, uh, but anyway, he went to Everton. But um, yeah. no, an, an excellent player, an excellent football man, and a, a very intelligent fellow. And he's a great radio voice as well. There are certain voices, yeah, yeah. and we're not going to mention them because you can probably guess, which are there to pull in a certain type of listener that isn't me. And Pat <laughs> Nevin's voice, like Chris Waddles, like David Pleats, like Jimmy Armfield, mm-hmm. is a proper BBC radio voice. And we should protect Pat Nevin at all costs, yeah. because he, he seems yeah, a great human being as well. He is, yeah, yeah. I mean, he's excellent, and um, he's a great player when he was at Chelsea. Um, wonderful to watch, and I really enjoyed. I really enjoyed the um, the first couple of years that he was involved at Chelsea. It when, was really, really good. Today, mm-hmm. Chelsea, a completely different club. We've had the Roman era. We've had the Ken Bates era. We're now on yeah. the Todd Booley era. Um, what's the end game for Todd Beely? Is it to make a load of money or is it to win trophies or both? Well, I mean, the American owners, they do want a return uh, on their investment. And, you know, there's, there's nothing wrong with that. Although, you know, p- people do tend to think that football is some sort of vocation and people aren't supposed to make loads of money if they own a club. Um, I think that Bowley will enjoy bringing success more success to Chelsea. At the end of the day, you know, they, you know, sports team owners, as they call them in, in the US, they do enjoy the success of their teams. And I think Bowley will want that. Then, you know, if he's only there for 10 years or less or whatever, when he comes to sell Chelsea, he will want it to be in the sort of shape that uh, enables him to make a make uh, make a profit mm. on his deal i'm sure well he will like, he will have to read the club which was um was it joshua robinson and and someone clegg randy lerner yes. made a loss yeah. when he sold aston yeah. villa yeah well, aston villa's not chelsea um insofar you know yes i i, I read that book actually mm. yeah um that's a good book as well but um yeah i mean chelsea's a london club and i think you know that brings a premium anyway also it's a club that's used to champions league football so that will also mean that their value their you know the value of the club will be that much higher uh, you know I, I remember when abramovich took over chelsea and then for years chelsea were winning trophies and people were saying you watch when abramovich goes this club will be in non-league football no of course it won't because it is an asset which um, there'll be no shortage of takers. There was no shortage of takers for Chelsea when Abramovich was selling. 
no no shortage. They had a, a short list of a dozen. It, that's why it took so long. There were so many people involved. Clubs like Chelsea have value, and they have value because they can make money for their owners if they wish. Abramovich was the most unusual owner insofar that he didn't look for a return of any sort out of the club. Well, However, his, we know what his return was. His return was kind of immunity. Um, yeah, in all probability, mm-hmm. but also uh, credibility as well. Yeah. He wanted to live in, in, in the UK. Um, he wasn't able to do that in the end. Uh, and of course, you know, geopolitical events uh, mm-hmm. conspired to really make Abramovich... Um, well, no persona non grata. So, as yeah. far as I'm aware, about five years ago, Abramovich wanted to redevelop or move the stadium. He couldn't, which is why he took his passport elsewhere. Is the plan yeah. in the next ten years, having obviously out put across the outlay of personnel by signing a reserve left back for fifty million pound, and then paying off Thomas Tuchel, having done that, is the plan to redevelop Stamford Bridge? I'm sure it has to be, Johnny, because Chelsea at the moment have got a severe disadvantage um, compared to many of their peers. Now, you've got Arsenal, you've got Tottenham, you've got West Ham, all with 60,000 capacity stadiums, and Chelsea have got 39,500 or something like, close to that. Stamford Bridge, whilst it is their ancestral home, does need redeveloping. It needs to be brought into 21st century. It's quite a neat and compact stadium, and, you know, after years of, you know, crumbling away... Actually, it's a neat and it's a comfortable stadium. That's all it is. But, you know, it's 20,000 light of spectators for what the demand is for Chelsea. You can't get a ticket at Chelsea for love or money. You know, it's very difficult. And that's because there's only 39,000 of them. And, you know, the club, as it is, it's a 60,000 capacity club. But it doesn't have the ground. So... I would imagine that high on the agenda must be stadium redevelopment, whether it's at Stamford Bridge or whether it's somewhere else. It's probably going to have to be Stamford Bridge because yeah. getting a site in London, you know, is is impossible as it's been proven. Um, so I would imagine, yes, there there will in the next you know four or five years, mm-hmm. Stamford Bridge will look very different. I hope it does. I hope it does get developed because. One, I'd like to go and see them more. And two, in order to compete with your Real Madrids and Barcelonas, they need uh, they need to be bigger. I mean, look at Atletico Madrid. Atletico Madrid had a very uh, iconic stadium, but it was only like 40,000. They've moved to the, the Wanda Metropolitano, which is 60,000. Wonderful building, you know, sort of like very, very striking, great atmosphere. They're getting 55,000 at least. Therefore, you know, for a club like Chelsea, that has got to be a prerequisite for them to compete in the future, I think. We are talking on the 12th of September. We don't know as it stands if Super Sunday... I imagine not, because the next day is the funeral. But Chelsea-Liverpool mm-hmm. was going to be the first league game. Chelsea-Red yep. Bull-Zaltzburg, we don't know again if that's going to take place this week. Uh, but we can safely say that... Um, the day after our chat goes out on the 30th of September, Chelsea will travel to Crystal Palace uh, and it will be Graham Potter's first away game in the Chelsea dugout. The team is full of internationals, half of its new signings. Um, Have you solved the striker problem yet? 
No, definitely not. They definitely need a uh, a striker that fits their style, really. Although we really don't know what the style is going to be when Potter takes over. Wingbacks. Um, Wingbacks, and, and I, yeah. I went to see Watford Brighton last season, and the way they switched the play from Cucurella to Lamptey was extraordinary. Mm-hmm. And that was where well, the first goal came, and I'll always remember it. And it was just, they were astonishing at controlling mm-hmm. the game. Um yeah, well, they've got they've got probably got the players to do that, um, but they haven't got. Uh, I don't think they've got um, the forward they need uh, to compete. At the, at the, you know, certainly I don't see Chelsea competing in the um, in the uh, Premier this year for the title. They may get a good run in the Champions League, but they lost the other day to Zagreb. Mm. You know, and they, they were pretty awful. Um, but um, I well, do think. I do think they do need they need a, a proper striker. This yes, really... well, this is a dot season because it's so disrupted by several things. I think Liverpool should just take it off. They should just play all the kids, give all the senior players a rest, and then Jurgen Klopp can kind of cackle maniacally as Liverpool because it's now a crisis that they've lost their fourth game this year. It is it is extraordinary how the narrative of football has changed, especially because. As you've said, at gameofthepeople.com, still there, still full of wonderful things, um, including previews of European football. Success is all, second is nothing, um, which, is, which is obviously sad because there are 91 clubs that would love to be first, yeah. but there's yeah. only one owned by Abu Dhabi. But we're going into a period where English football will have Chelsea and Liverpool and Manchester United all, uh, and Arsenal owned by Americans, Saudi Arabia yes. and Abu Dhabi owning Man City and Newcastle. Uh, Joe Lewis, who is an exiled Caribbean owner. So they're the big seven. How yeah. can, say, Everton or Palace or Brighton or Leeds compete with those top seven? And should we be appalled by this? It's difficult for them to compete. But we have seen that some clubs who are smart can um, compete in a certain way. The way Brentford and Brighton both operate suggests there is a future for medium to small-sized clubs if they get their business model right. I think we have to wave goodbye to some of these teams like the Chelsea's and Liverpool's and Man City. At some point, we're going to have to wave goodbye to them. Uh, And when I say that, I I see a a Super League as being inevitable um, in some ways. And whilst we'll all wring our hands about this because we don't like the way things are going how competitive is football in Europe when most most leagues are already dominated by the clubs that would form a Super League? If you take them out of the equation and create a European Super League, the domestic leagues could bring forward a whole new set of elite clubs because the, the ones that are dominated for decades may be out of the picture. Now, there is an argument that by doing that, it weakens the domestic league. But hang on a minute. How strong is are these domestic leagues when the same teams keep winning all the time? It suggests that the rest of the leagues are not uh, cannot keep pace with these elite clubs. So I think there's a, there's a big argument, to you know, a big debate to be had about the European Super League project, which, for the record, I don't. The way they were doing it, I don't agree. 
But I think that the, the Champions League it is de facto a European Super League. Yes, it is. Certainly, there is an argument that was made recently that the Premier League is the real European Super League. But um, we will we'll see what happens with the Champions League because it is going through some changes. But it does still yeah. match the best teams in Europe against one another, even it though it indeed, probably yeah. it concentrates towards the latter end. Uh, it and, does, it, yeah. and it gets it eyeballs to these players and increases their own brand. We haven't really talked about player brand awareness. That could be your next book. I don't know I don't know if you can say what the next project that you've got is. Well, I've got a couple that I've suge- suggested to pitch. I'm waiting for them to um, come back to me. Um, at this stage, no, I won't, I won't reveal. Fine. Uh, if, we'll wait and see what happens. But um, I've got quite a few ideas and um, I, would re- I would really like to start work on another book, to be honest, and um, I, at I'm the moment. Positive that some hints and tips as to what book will be, what the book form the book will take, will be at gameofthepeople.com. Oh, yes, it will. Yeah, yeah. it will. And it will when, when that time comes. The yeah. book, The Great Uncrowned, celebrates football's losers uh, stretching back a century and uh, coming to rest uh, very recently indeed. Neil Jensen, I hope Chelsea do all right. I hope Graham Potter has a full season and at least stays until the rest of the season. Um, but in the meantime, um, up the blues, in Bowley we trust, and uh, best of luck with this book, The Great Uncrowned, which you've dropped off into the football library. Uh, have you got any writing to do today? Um, yes. Yes, I have. Yeah, I'm working, on a, I'm working on a new series for Game of the People on the great managers, um, and I'm hopefully publishing a piece today, an extensive piece on Bill Nicholson, so, Brilliant. Um... Just like the library! Just like the library!